to share some of my favorite places to see wildflowers in early spring in and around Yosemite National Park. Plant identification is one of my favorite activities because I learn so much about an area just from identifying a single plant species. So for example, on a recent hike in Yosemite, I walked over a hillside and it was just full of these manzanita trees. And in case you're not familiar with manzanita, let me just describe it for you really quick. So manzanita are a shrub uh, or they're a small tree kind of with these small green or pale green leaves. And they have these uh, twisty branches that are covered in what looks like this red waxy coating. So they're just very uh, unique looking plants and always grab my attention. I'm always very curious about them. Now you see a lot of manzanita in Yosemite, but they like very specific growing conditions. So you won't find them everywhere. And when I opened my field guide, I found out that there were two types of manzanita in my location that day, and those were the green leaf and the white leaf manzanita. So I studied the differences in the field. I noted the colors and the textures and the leaves and branches, and I took some photos. And then when I got home, I did a little more research, and I found out that manzanita trees, um, their seeds are also fire-dependent, which means that they only germinate when they're um, cracked open by the heat of a wildfire, which means they can lay dormant for a very long time. And that would explain perhaps why manzanita trees contain such highly flammable chemicals in their biological makeup. So they need to attract fire for the next generation of seeds to germinate and grow, and the parent plants actually sacrifice themselves for this purpose. So I asked myself, why would the parent plants need to burn for the new plants to grow? And I thought maybe it was because manzanitas are also shade intolerant. And so a crown fire encouraged by the highly flammable chemicals in the plants would effectively clear the forest canopy. And the place I was hiking in that day had clearly gone through a significant burn in the last 20 to 30 years. It was totally bare of trees and only a few burn snags remained among a field of prospering manzanita. Now, I could go on about this because plant identification is a totally classic trap for nature nerds to descend down the rabbit hole, uh, which makes us great for trivia night, but not so great for the sake of brevity. And this episode is about best places to see wildflowers, so I will continue on with that. But I just wanted to give you an idea of why it's just really nice to get out in the field, not just to take photos or to reach a destination, but to take your time and really get to know the different uh, plant species in an area. Um, plant identification, it just really brings you into the moment and into a place and anyone can do it with just a little bit of time and attention. It's the perfect activity for everyone. So the best place to see the first wildflowers around Yosemite is in the Merced River Canyon. And it is a very popular place for wildflower enthusiasts in early March, particularly. The hillsides just explode with color as soon as California poppies start to bloom. So this beautiful bright orange flower It's very easy to identify for the fact that it grows in these huge masses and the flowers are relatively large. Um, It's also the state flower for California. When California poppies are in bloom, they almost completely cover the landscape in a sea of orange. And you know when you see poppies that lupins are not far behind. The lupins are very special. They're one of those flowers that give you so many rewards if you stop to really observe them. They're super complex. Um, they're usually a purple or bluish color, so just imagine that um, with the orange of the poppies. 
and they have a they're they come up in like a stalk and they have lots of these little buds covering a single stem and each of those little buds have these two side uh petals that shield this um the pistil and the stamens in the flower that are contained in this very unique sort of little canoe-shaped petal called a keel. So if you gently like pull the keel away from the side petals, you reveal this just micro world of bustling activity full of little pollinating insects that you would have never noticed otherwise. I mean, it's it's hypnotizing. You, I lose all time when I'm observing loop and I'll sit there for up to an hour sometimes just like with a single plant. But anyway, other flowers you can expect to find in the Merced River Canyon include redbud, which are kind of a more fuchsia color, um, and they grow near the river, sort of more like a little tree as well. Uh, Indian paintbrush, it's a little red flower with thin pointy petals, and um, you'll even find some varieties of a local favorite shooting stars. And these are little purple pinkish flowers that um, are actually kind of shaped like little shooting stars. They're, they're just adorable. Um, so those are just a few of the flower species that I see most often, but there are dozens and perhaps hundreds of different flowers in the Merced River Canyon. It is a total botanist paradise. So the best place to see uh, these wildflowers is definitely Hike Cove. Um, and this is a, a short hike that you can find near Savage's Trading Post on the way to Yosemite on Highway 140. And that's the highway coming from the west. So this is undeniably where you will find the greatest concentration and variety of wildflowers in the whole River Canyon. But keep in mind, uh, it is crowded because it's right off the road and the trail is very narrow, which makes passing kind of impossible at times, especially if there's a large group on the trail. Um, That's probably why it's good to go into this hike with the stop and smell the flowers mindset, because you will be stopping a lot. But the greatest or the highest concentration of wildflowers is within the first two miles on the trail, and the crowds tend to thin out a little bit the further you go back. Um, but it's a fairly easy hike. It's mostly flat, and it's it's good for all skill levels. If you're going during wildflower season, early March to early May, just be prepared to have your mind totally blown, <laughs> especially if you've never seen like a big concentration of wildflowers in a field. It's like nature just went totally crazy and assembled the most vibrant and diverse display of flowers for your enjoyment. But you know, it's not actually for us. It's for the pollinators. So be prepared for many bugs and bees. Um, I also would not recommend dogs on this hike because the trail is so narrow. It's really narrow um, and the drop is a little bit steep on one side and the habitat is very delicate. So just keep that in mind as well. Um, All in all, expect to walk a minimum of two miles and a maximum of about nine miles if you make it all the way to the end. Bring snacks and water. Uh, There are no facilities and it does actually get quite hot in March. Uh, The temperatures reach into the high 60s and maybe even the high 70s. So sun protection should also uh, be considered. And of course, don't forget your field guide and your camera. Our next stop for spring flowers is Yosemite Valley. Now, these flowers arrive a little bit later in the season due to the higher elevation. Um, And while Yosemite Valley may not be known for the bright fields of flowers like the Merced River Canyon, it's still a great place to see some different varieties that you won't find in the lower elevations. So my first introduction to Yosemite Valley wildflowers was during a training session um, where we identified two common and very unassuming flowers. And that was, those were St. John's wort and uh, yarrow. And I 
probably walked past those flowers hundreds of times, never knowing their names or significance, which is why it's really nice to go out with someone uh, who knows who knows what to look for, or even just with an open mind. But on my naturalist excursion that day, I learned that St. John's wort is a medicinal herb. It's also non-native. Uh, it was used to treat depression. It still is. And yarrow was another medicinal plant that is used as a coagulant, or that can be used as a coagulant. And so the scientific name for yarrow is Achillea milfolium, and it was named for the Greek hero Achilles, who is said to have carried the plant to treat soldiers who were wounded in battle. Of course, the best place to see wildflowers from May through June in Yosemite Valley is in the meadows, and that is because while the meadows make up a small percentage of land in Yosemite, I think they make up like 3% (laughs) of the total landmass, they hold about two-thirds of the plant species of the region. So my recommendation for our purposes, hands down, is Cook's Meadow. You can access Cook's Meadow from Sentinel Bridge, the Lower Yosemite Fall Shuttle Stop, or the Visitor Center, but I personally would start from Yosemite Village at the Visitor Center and ask a ranger or volunteer which flowers to look for. Cook's Meadow is my favorite uh, for flowers because of the extensive boardwalk system that takes you to different parts of the meadow and allows for more exploration. But by all means, please do not step into the meadows. They're incredibly fragile and they function not only as habitat and food sources for all, for our wildlife, but they also um, they also hold and slowly release uh, water. It's snowmelt, which prevents our landscape from drying up too early and actually helps protect us from uh, the dangers of wildfire later in the season as well. So once in the meadow, you can expect to find a cow parsnip, lots of that, delphiniums, St. John's wort, bird's eyes, baby blue eyes, and my absolute favorite meadow flower, showy milkweed. Now I'm going to do a whole episode on milkweed one day because uh, that plant just has the most extraordinary purpose due to its association with monarch butterflies. So monarch butterflies are these beautiful bright orange and black butterflies, and they're known for this impressive migration path that spans thousands of miles and multiple generations across North America and other parts of the world. And the species um, in North America are wholly dependent on milkweed for their eggs and larvae during migration. Um, Monarch caterpillars feed exclusively on the leaves of showy milkweed and incorporate a um, toxic chemical from the plant into their bodies so that they will not be eaten by predators in their vulnerable state. But milkweed is considered an invasive species by farmers in the Central Valley of California, and the plant has been largely eliminated uh, from those areas due to the development of farmland and other agriculture um, because it is a toxic plant for uh, livestock as well. So monarch butterflies and their young they lost a great deal of habitat in this migration zone and due to that. And we know now that monarch numbers have decreased substantially, some research suggesting that only about 1% of the original population of North American monarchs are reaching their winter destinations. Um, and, you know, we're not sure if they're finding new places or not. But anyway, that's just those are just the counts that they have as of now. Now, there are many reasons for this, including loss of winter habitat due to um, logging, illegal logging mostly in Mexico and unprecedented weather events over the last decade. But loss of milkweed is also a huge contributing factor. So milkweed is one of the easiest plants to identify. It grows up to three feet tall with these big soft leaves and beautiful clusters of pink flowers, kind of like big (laughs) pom-poms. They smell very sweet and attract a lot of pollinators. The meadows are just full of milkweed, and I think a lot of that is due to meadow restoration and revegetation of the past 20 years, which is another reason why we ask people not to walk in the meadows, because they're plants are actually being planted there. So just imagine someone coming in like stomping around in your garden on all your 
on all your tomatoes and green beans. Um, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we just we just want to make the make make sure those plants have the best chance of survival. Uh, anyway, so this brings us to my final recommendation for best places to see wildflowers in the spring. And for this one, we get to travel all the way to Yosemite's northwestern land to a place called Hetch Hetchy. So I'm sure that a lot of you have heard of Hetch Hetchy, but I'm going to guess that most of you listeners have never been there. And that is actually fine because it's it's not for everyone. Hetch Hetchy, it also deserves its own episode, but basically it was once a valley, very much like Yosemite Valley. In fact, it was almost identical to it. And uh, it was dammed up and flooded over 100 years ago. And the reason it was dammed was to supply drinking water to San Francisco and to produce hydroelectric power. Now, I'm not going to get into the controversy about Hetch Hetchy on this podcast because this is one, this one is about flowers, but I promise that we will talk about it very, very soon. A lot of people don't like to go to Hetch Hetchy um, because it's not as established as Yosemite Valley, but that is precisely why I love it there. I think I've explored Hetchy more than most people. It was the place where I had my first backpacking trip, and it was actually my last solo backpacking trip before leaving Yosemite in 2019. So you could say it's it's a very special place to me. But aside from the lack of crowds, Hetch Hetchy is also great for early spring wildflowers because it is much warmer than Yosemite Valley, and spring comes a little earlier there, just like in the River Canyon. So I would plan a trip there in April, March or April, it really gets too hot by summer, and and there are a lot more rattlesnakes in the warmer months as well, so uh, keep that in mind. And for wildflowers, I would recommend heading toward Wapama Falls for this trip, as you will not only find flowers, but you will get very close to one of Yosemite's most impressive accessible waterfalls. You get really close to it. In fact, you walk like right under it, kind of. Um, the hike is five miles round trip with minimal elevation gain, but it does get um, pretty hot even in the spring. So bring lots of water and sun protection. Uh, you'll want to pay attention to the seepage areas along the trail to Apama Falls. And I've identified many flower species on this trail alone, including seep spring monkey flower, owl clover, butterfly mariposa lily, uh, harlequin lupin, Indian paintbrush. And they even have, there's even this little succulent there with a very clever name. It's called live forever. And I, I just love these little plants. I say that a lot, I know, but <laughs> I just, I, I have a few favorites. But anyway, live forever. Uh, they're part of the stone crop family and they are these little, they have these little red and yellow flowers. They really stand out. And you find this beautiful and unusual plant in rocky areas. They usually stick out of rocky hillsides. It is so bright and charismatic, and it's so different from most of the other uh, plants in the area. Live forever. Um, they're succulents. They store water like a cactus, which makes them well adapted for the hot and dry season in Hetch Hetchy. And they end up outlasting many other flowers, which may be how they receive that really cute name, Live Forever. So yes, I highly recommend Hetch Hetchy for flowers. Because Hetch Hetchy is so undeveloped, there are a lot of different plant and flower species there. Although you won't find the flowers in areas of high concentration due to the unusual quality of the landscape because of the reservoir. Basically, there just isn't a lot of open land until you get away from the reservoir. But if you wanted to do a longer trip or even an overnight uh, Beehive Meadow is one of the most impressive places to see wildflowers, maybe in the whole park. But that is a much longer trip um, with a lot of elevation gain. So I wouldn't recommend it for a day hike, but definitely worth considering for hardcore flower people. <laughs> 
Well, those are my recommendations for where to catch the best wildflowers in early spring around Yosemite. If you think identifying wildflowers would be something you would enjoy, then I suggest you find a good field guide and a notebook and just get on out there. So I use the John Muir Laws Field Guide for the Sierra Nevada. It's the best one for that area, and I will include a link for that in the show notes. But you don't need to go all the way to Yosemite to find wildflowers. It is likely, this time of year, uh, that there are green spaces and parks around where you live, and you may even be able to find many species in your own backyard. Just be careful with pollinators. Flowers typically come with bees. In fact, I have had to reroute my evening walk because I was being chased by a territorial bumblebee when I passed when I'm assuming was his favorite flower bush. Um, so I get chased by bees a lot, actually. Does anyone else have this problem? Is it just me? It seems like it's just me. I don't know what it is. Maybe I smell sweet. Um, also, there is a great free app available for Plant ID called iNaturalist, where you take a photo of the plant, tree, bug, mushroom, animal, or whatever you're trying to identify, and you upload it uh, to the app, and then it will identify it for you. And so I've used it a lot, actually, and I found it to be very accurate. So that is another kind of free option for you as well and, and a great resource. Just another thing to have in your plant identification arsenal. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this stuff and have a few minutes, it helps me a lot if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you want to help out the podcast directly, please consider joining the Little Yo Pod Patreon community, where a small monthly contribution gets bonus videos that I post uh, only for members of Patreon, (laughs) our members only club. (laughs) We're making jackets. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But this week, I also created a short video of some of the common wildflowers that you see in and around Yosemite, and that is actually up on YouTube for everyone, so check that out if you're interested, and links for my Patreon page and my YouTube page will be in today's show notes, as well as all of the resources I used for this episode. I also want to announce that I officially have a job in Yosemite this summer as a naturalist guide, and it was in no small part due to the success of this podcast. So I just want to thank everyone who has reached out or left a review or told their friends about the podcast. You guys got me a job, kind of, kind of. Well, actually, because I wouldn't probably not have kept doing it if I wasn't getting listeners. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that your effort definitely did help me get a job. So thank you so much. Your check is in the mail. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm not getting paid yet. (laughs) Oh, and one more thing before I go, if you want a little Yopod sticker, I still have those available for listeners in the United States. So just go ahead and send an email to littleyopod at gmail.com with your name and address. And I will send one out to you ASAP free of charge. Because while there may be no such thing as a free lunch, there are certainly free Little Yo Pod stickers. All right, you guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day.